When the when the Buddha sat underneath the Bodhi tree, um, his mind opened up and he saw things very clearly. And he spent about six weeks contemplating the gratitude that he had for his understanding and the awakening that came and the causes and conditions that gave rise to it. And then um, he thought, well, you know, what should I do? You know, because this stuff is actually quite uh, subtle. It's not so easy to understand. So he thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll go and I'll, I'll, I'll share this with the people who were my teachers. So because his mind had opened up not only to the, the, the things that you could see in front of you, he also had a vision that was extending beyond the immediate perspective. And so he could, when he just looked to put his attention where his teachers were, he knew that they had passed away. So he thought, well, you know, I can't, I can't share it with them because they're not here, so who else can I, can I go share it with? So he thought, well, you know, I can, I can go and I can speak to the people that I was practicing with before I left to be on my own and see if I could figure this stuff out by myself. So he was heading back in the direction of where he knew they were practicing, these five ascetics. And on the way there, um, you know, he met a wanderer. So when a person's mind opens up, it's like they're not stressed out, you know, they're not tense or tight, and what was his countenance was just radiant, luminous, because there was no tension in his body. There was just, uh, you know, clear seeing and, um, you know, still the enormous bliss of releasing the traces of ignorance and suffering. So he encountered a wanderer, and so the wanderer had said, Hey, dude, you know, who are you? And he said, You know, I'm the all-awakened one. You know, I'm fully enlightened. I'm all-awakened. It's like, you know, that's who I am. So the guy goes, Yeah, right. You know, I'll see you later. And that was his response. He said, I'll see you later. Good for you. I'll see you later. And so, you know, the Buddha realized, because he was a bit of a quick learner, that declaring his own awakening wasn't actually a useful way of teaching because as it was in the example of this one person, they couldn't, there was nothing that they could relate to with what he was saying. And so it was, he shifted tactics from declaring his own awakening and the, the nature of the enlightened mind to uh, moving into a much more practical way of talking about how to practice. So when he went to the five ascetics, he the first talk that he gave was on the was on the four noble truths. So he starts with this conversation around, you know, what is life like? And he starts with the with the descriptions of the various ways in which it's it's not so great, you know. 
the pain that we experience with our bodies getting older, the kinds of challenges that we experience when we get sick, the, uh, the experiences that we have, you know, passing through the gateways of death, you know, these are not great things for most people, you know. They're not inspiring, they're not exalted, they're not fantastic. You know, I, I haven't heard of many people talking about getting old as something that's particularly sexy, you know. <laughs> it's just like, it's for most people, it's, it's a drag, you know. And then he talked about the kind of pain of what it's like to, to want something and to not get it, you know. To want friendship, to want success, to want kindness, to want pleasure, to want um, things to go our way, to want our opinions to be heard, to want to be affirmed or validated, to want to be supported, to want um, to have a career that is deeply aligned with our values. You know, there's all kinds of myriad ways that we can want. And when we don't get what we want, there's a sense of of disappointment or a sense of grief or sadness or a sense of, you know, it throws us back into a kind of a fundamental place for many of loneliness or emptiness of, you know, what's my life like if I can't fill it up with these things that I think are going to make me happy or the things that I'm hoping for are not going to do it for me, then what am I left with? And for many, there's this feeling of, you know, what I'm left with feels really not very great. You know, I'm sad a lot, or I'm lonely a lot, or I I feel this deep-seated emptiness a lot. You know, or we have things that we don't want, you know. We have contact with people that we don't particularly get along with well. Or we have tasks that are responsibilities that we don't enjoy. Or, you know, we've got too much to do in a day. Or, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't want. And so, you know, for many people, we kind of hang out with this sense that, well, happiness is getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want. And that's, that's our kind of modus of operandi. That's the way we operate in the world. And for some people, there can be a certain amount of skill in, in our ability to do that, and uh, resourcefulness, or even, you know, uh, people who are tremendously powerful or have a lot of wealth, they can pick up the telephone and get things to happen, you know. But being able to get things to happen doesn't actually attend to this underneath feeling of what's there when you put the phone down and whatever's gotten to be happening has stopped happening. You know, we're, we're left with the fundamental stuff of what we're dealing with. And so this whole issue of like, what is the root of our own longing? You know, how do we experience that? How does it manifest? What kind of shape does it take? Is a really very powerful inquiry. Because when we understand the root of our of our longing, we can also see the strategies that we've adopted of how to deal with it. And for some, there are many healthy strategies. And for others, there are many incredibly unhealthy strategies. And for most of us, there's a quite a spectrum from one end to the other of healthy 
medium and tremendously unhealthy strategies on how to deal with, you know, the roots of our longing, what we actually crave and what we want. And so each of us really would be well advised to just, you know, spend some time and say, you know, what do I really want? What's really important for me? What really gets me motivated and what has me grab, you know, gripped? What focuses my attention? Where do I get lost? Where do I get obsessed? And how is that connected to what it is that I want? Because we are complex creatures, and part of the way that we operate is, is, is that we've survived all these gazillion years because our mechanisms are that we have been able to move towards what's pleasurable and to move towards away from what's painful. And so that's part of the mechanism of our nervous system, that we are very strongly conditioned towards moving towards pleasure and moving away towards pain. And there's nothing about that which in and of itself is wrong. That's not a wrong mechanism. And we can see, we share that. It's not only that all people have this, and we all people independent of ethnicity, independent of economic uh, station in life, independent of sexual orientation, independent of political values, It's like this is a universal thing. We move towards what's pleasant and we move away from what's unpleasant. And we can see that not only in the human realm, but we can also see that in the animal realm. You know, the way animals really appreciate care and kindness and really get um, freaked out or traumatized by uh, coarse or rough or abusive behavior. And we can also see that in the plant world. You know, the sunflowers moving towards the sun or the sequoia trees, their roots are interlocking so that if a tree, the root systems are very broad spread and so if there's a tree that's 500 meters away, that it's in a pocket of soil that's depleted with a certain kind of mineral, but its root system is interlocking with a tree that has access to that roots, that that mineral, they have a way of sharing that because having what you need allows them to flourish. And if you've got too much, you can share it. So the sequoias have got a kind of interlocking system of, you know, sharing more than what they need that that supports the health and well-being of the forest. So that the more forest is healthy, the better off the individual is. Okay? It's beautiful. Just beautiful, you know? So in our own worlds, in our own lives, you know, this inquiry of what do we long for? You know, where do we experience real hunger? You know, for intimacy or for physical pleasure or for taste or for food or for adventure or for affirmation or for status or for material wealth or stability or for friendship. You know, where do we hunger? And without wanting to judge, you know, just look and see, what does that look like? How do we express that? What kind of behaviors are around trying to secure that? And how many of those behaviors are congruent with our values? How many of those behaviors are, are, are a kind of like neither here nor there? And how many of those behaviors take us outside of what's congruent with our values into stuff that actually we know it doesn't serve anybody? You know, not 
in order to shame or to judge or to criticize or to trash ourselves. Not for that. You know, not for that. But to begin to get a look at what is it that I want and how am I going about getting it? And is the way that I'm going about getting it actually congruent with what is really important to me? You know? That's a really important inquiry. It's a really important inquiry. Now, the Buddha went on to say that, okay, so this unsatisfactoriness that we experience with having a body and not having what we want and having things that we don't want is something that we have to contend with in life. This is not a kind of like, um, this is not just something that you can just dismiss. It's here. We have to deal with it. Yeah. So the, 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 the discomfort that comes with aging is the result of having a body. You know? It's not because we're not thinking properly. It's because we have a body. You know? So he went on to say, well, the real problem is, is that there's actually a cause. And the cause of the suffering that we experience is often, though not entirely, related to wanting things to be a particular way and not wanting them to be another way. So, for example, with aging, okay? The problem with aging is not that our bodies get older, you know, and things head in the downwards direction, and, you know, hairs turn gray, and hair appear where it's not welcome for some, and hair disappears where it's wanted for others, and, you know, the, the kind of natural aging process is the result of having a body, but that in and of itself isn't the problem. The problem is, is our wanting it to be different than that. Our hanging out, hoping that it wouldn't happen. Okay? And our hanging out, hoping that it wouldn't happen, is usually organized around three principal kinds of expressions of desire. The desire for sensual experience, the desire for sensuality, you know, just sex and food and drink and taste and smells and physical contact that is pleasurable. It's the desire for becoming, wanting to be somebody, wanting to be affirmed, wanting the opinions to be recognized, wanting to have stature or status, wanting to have power or position, or the desire not to be. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to know about it. Get me out of here. You know, where's the bucket of sand I can stick my head in? It's like, how can I disappear and dissolve? How can I check out? Okay? So when we look at our strategies, we can check and see how many of our strategies are connected to the first kind of desire around wanting sense pleasure. How many of our strategies are connected to the desire to be somebody? And how many of our strategies are connected to checking out? Like, I don't want to know. I just don't want to know. I don't want to feel it. And some are a combination, you know. So, like drugs and alcohol, the initial experience might be pleasurable in terms of our physical experience, but the result, the end result, is is that we're totally checked out. We can't process anything, you know. So... Our strategies are often related to one of these three kinds of desires. 
And when we get clear about what our strategies are and what kind of desires they're actually organized around, that gives us more leverage for being with and working with what's going on. Now, for many of these situations, the desire to get is based on the discomfort of not having. And so when we have the ability to kind of drop in and feel what's going on and attend to the pain of not having, the pain of feeling empty or the pain of feeling lonely or the pain of feeling sad or the pain of having a body that is not in our control where hairs do turn gray and body parts do end up closer to the floor. And understand the humility of that, the out-of-controlness of that, and begin to release and relax our grasping for wanting it to be otherwise. Then something shifts. And what shifts is not that our gray hairs magically disappear, That's not what shifts. What shifts is the kind of deep-seated hunger that it has to be different than the way that it is. That's what shifts. And when that shifts, there is much less stress in the system. And when there's much less stress in the system, there's more ease, there's more peace, there's more joy. Now, some kinds of desires are, don't actually follow this pattern. So you know, there's many kinds of circumstances that are absolutely abusive or oppressive. And in circumstances like that, it isn't just simply a matter of looking at the thing that we don't want, but seeing what we can do in order to get the support that we need, to find the allies that we need in order to get a little bit more purchase so that we can be in a situation that's less abusive or less oppressive, you know? So when we're in certain kinds of social circumstances, it isn't only entirely an inside job in terms of how to navigate it. However, the way we react to abuse, the way we react to oppression is going to certainly scale up the Richter scale of how much suffering we're actually experiencing as we're living through it. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to be proactive in getting out of there. But it does mean that the impact on our nervous system and our heart and our body is going to be on a huge spectrum depending on how we are able to navigate something which is fundamentally not okay. Yeah. And that's important to know that we have choice. Even when we're in something that's horrendous, we have choice about what we do with our attention and how we're relating to it. We have choice. And that choice gives us more capacity to be grounded and skillful and wise and discerning. When we get too distressed, when we get too upset, our choice narrows. We we lose choice. We don't have so many different options of what we can do with our attention because our system is too activated. And certainly, I know I've been in that situation where I was so freaked out. It was like, it was just felt like a question of 
you know, absolute survival. You know, what can I do this next minute to survive? So when you're in a survival circumstance, you don't feel like you've got a whole lot of resources of places where you can choose. You know, it's usually very, very polarized and extreme about it's either this or that, and there's very little in between, you know, about what's needed. And oftentimes our perspective is actually quite distorted. When we're not so freaked out, all kinds of choices open up that we just had no capacity to see or follow. So that the more we're able to self-regulate and take care of ourselves and relax and unwind and not allow our nervous systems to get into that state of extreme uh, excitement or upset, then the more we're able to see the choices that we have and, and, then, and then be able to use the discernment that's operating in order to make skillful choices that helps open up opportunities. So the Buddha talked about the noble truth of unsatisfactoriness as something that is part of what we have to deal with in our human condition. And I would imagine it's like this is probably familiar to everyone here. You know, we don't have to go too far in order to see that. And the Buddha also talked about that this basic unsatisfactoriness that we experience has a root cause. And this root cause for the things like old age, sickness, and death, and not wanting what we have and, and having what we don't want, comes from that fundamental relationship of not wanting things to be the way they are. And so in that, there is an unbelievable magic key, like gold, like worth its weight in jewels, because if we can see that a lot of the suffering that we experience is resistance to what's arising, then exactly there is where we can find the release. Okay? Right there. You don't have to run away. We don't have to shave our head. You don't have to put on robes. You don't have to go to India. It's right exactly where you're feeling miserable is where the release from being miserable can be found. Okay? It's a porthole. The not wanting is a porthole. And as we learn how to relax our bodies around the places that we really don't want, that we resist, you know, the experience of emptiness or the fear of being betrayed or not wanting to feel abandoned, you know, or anxiety, the incredible anxiety that we can wake up in the morning and feel, the resistance to it, when we begin to learn how to turn our attention and relax the resistance, what happens? What happens? What happens? So a lot of the time we don't even watch what happens because we're so busy trying to get away from what we don't want that we don't actually see what happens if we turn and move forward and face it, what the experience is. These monsters that we've created get smaller and smaller and smaller until the Wizard of Oz, the curtains are revealed and there's this old dude sitting behind at the steering wheels. It's like, it's not very scary, you know? 
Now, with some of the stuff that we're dealing with, it takes a lot of practice for it to turn into something that's not very scary because some of the stuff is really scary. Really scary. That feeling of vacuous emptiness, it's like nobody wants to touch that stuff. You know? That feeling of being desperately alone or isolated. You know, a feeling of grief that feels like it's absolutely bottomless. These are things that it takes a lot of skill and persistence and wisdom and compassion and support from wise friends to inch our way into this stuff and begin to see it and allow it to reveal what it actually is rather than the monster that we've created it to be. And as we do that, a shift takes place. And as we shift, what we see is not who we're running away from, but who we are. And when we see who we are, really see who we are, there might be things that we see that are difficult to accept. But more often, what we see is this unbelievable beauty that we find almost intolerable to accept. Why our own beauty and radiance scares the shit out of us, I don't know, but it does. It just absolutely scares us to death. And that's what we see when we stop running. And in order to stop running, we need to have resources. Because we can't go abseiling into these crevasses without support. It's not wise. So the Buddha's path of the Eightfold Path are the harnesses and the safety vests and the tethers that help us so that we can make this journey and touch what's there and live a life where we're not running away from ourselves. Where we sit in our own skin, where we're present with what's arising and responsive rather than reactive to it. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's worthwhile. So meditation is a really important part of the path. If we don't have any ability to settle and focus our minds and direct our attention, We don't have any leverage. We have no capacity to touch what's arising. We don't know where to begin. All we are is a series of action and reaction. There is no responsiveness. Well, that's probably the arrogance of somebody who's been meditating for too long. 
I'm sure people have their ways which work for them when they haven't been meditating. I've been meditating so long, I can't imagine what it would be like to live if you don't meditate. So I have my own arrogance that I have to contend with. There are good people who have intelligence who've never meditated ever, and, you know, that needs to be accepted, you know. But for myself, the value of meditation is the ability to slow things down and look carefully and begin to see the causes and effects of what is giving rise to what. But we can't just do this with meditation. Meditation is held in a whole context of community support, of integrity, of generosity, of service, of understanding what refuge really is. But it isn't only me in this dark world by myself trying to figure it out. The awakened mind is vast, ever-present, timeless, and innate. It isn't something that I have to run a million miles in order to get to. It's something that I need to drop in and sense and feel and locate and bring forward as an ally on this journey. So I admit it, this is not a journey for wimps. It takes guts to touch the things that are the scariest for us in the whole world and find a different response to them. But what do you want? What do you really want? What do you want so much that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get there? When we're clear about that, then we have the capacity to do what it takes to develop, to move forward, to gain the skills and the resource and the experience and the wise friends that we need to help us on the way. So, the Buddha taught a path. He taught that there is unsatisfactoriness. He taught that there is a cause. And for many situations, the cause of the unsatisfactoriness is an inside job. The good news is that it means right exactly where we suffer is right precisely and exactly where we can find release.
and he taught the path, an eightfold path that brings together the ingredients necessary in order to skillfully move towards the direction of being free from all traces of suffering. Suffering is not the same as pain. When we have a body, we have pain. And there's sometimes we can't avoid that. But we don't have to make ourselves crazy about it. So I'd like to pause here, leave these thoughts with you for your reflection. When I speak in this kind of a context where I'm offering a Dhamma talk, I get really aggravated if people believe me. Because I'm not interested in your believing me, I'm interested in your listening and seeing if what I say resonates with your own truth. When it resonates with your own truth, It's not a belief. And that kind of conviction is really important in a path of inquiry. So please listen from your belly and from your toes and from your heart. And if things resonate because they resonate with truths that you have inside, then pay attention. If they don't resonate, there's nothing that you need to do in terms of picking it up. You can just let it go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.